It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today my guest is an acclaimed singer and composer named Siren Tip. She has released a new album, which is an ambitious and rather unique new project inspired by climate change. And every song is based on a cause or effect of climate change. The album is titled Carbon. This album has been released on the Ropadope label. And joining me today is Siren Tip. Thank you so much for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am particularly impressed and admire the work that you're doing with such a fine piece of work as this album called Carbon. And I would like to delve very deeply into it and, and find out more in depth about the inspiration for it and uh, the goals that you had in mind for this. But what I would like to do uh, with your indulgence is uh, learn a little bit about you and your background. You have a very unique uh, background and heritage uh, as you were born in Bangkok, Thailand, and then eventually you moved uh, with uh, your mother or parents uh, to reestablish your Swedish heritage, and you yes. moved back to uh, Sweden. So tell us a little bit about that. How is it you started out in Bangkok and ended up in Sweden and then eventually through where you are today in New York City? So um, that was because back in the day, both of my parents worked in the tourist industry. So they actually met in Indonesia. My mother is Swedish and my dad is Thai. So they met on some kind of different work trips in Indonesia and then they fell in love. And then my mother got a job in Thailand. So then she was able to continue her relationship with my dad. And then I was born, I came into the picture there. And then we lived there together um, up until I was 11 years old. And then, unfortunately, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. So mm. we decided to move to Sweden because she felt like it was important for me to connect with my Swedish family in case she would not be able to stay with us. Um, but at the time, she'd also noticed that I really liked music. So I would sing along to everything that I heard on the radio and especially in Thailand and Bangkok, there's so much traffic. So every time we would be stuck in the car for hours, I would just be singing along to everything. Um, so she asked me if I wanted to go to Sweden to um, audition for a few music elementary schools. So as a nine-year-old, I went on a plane all by myself from Bangkok to Stockholm. I felt super cool of being that <laughs> one kid flying by myself. And then I auditioned to a bunch of elementary music schools and I got in. So we decided to move. Um, and um, the music school I went to is called Otto Frederick's uh, Music School. And it had a bunch, about a thousand kids and all of them could sing. So when I moved there and I started at the school, it was the same time as the Harry Potter movies came out. So for me, it felt very much like going to Hogwarts and being surrounded by all these wizard kids. <laughs> But yes, my mother is cancer-free now, so that's all good. 
Well, that's great. And it sounds like the wizards had an influence on you too, or it wore off on you, or it, it, it made a difference because you didn't start out as being a vocalist. Uh, you were doing a lot of what many artists do. They start out as a pianist or playing another instrument, and then the vocals come in later. Um, I continued to play, but then in my teens, I was actually introduced to a uh, a CD with Dana Crawl, and she sang and played piano at the same time, and it was all jazz. And I learned that, oh, in jazz, it's about individuality and what you want to express and know what the composer intended you to do. So that's where my like whole journey with jazz started, and I started diving deep into Ella and Louie and Dan Reeves and Bobby McFerrin and all those folks. You stayed in Sweden for a while, and started working there professionally. But then it's my understanding that Michael League of Snarky Puppy discovered you at a jazz club in Stockholm. Yes. So uh, during my college years, I was at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm. I started working three to four times a week at Fashing, which is the biggest jazz club in Stockholm. And I worked there as a production coordinator. So my job was to help all the artists, you know, get their all the backline they needed, get the hotels, get from the airport, make sure they get on stage on time. I would MC them, just make sure that they have whatever they need in the green room. So I was basically their contact person. And um, a lot of US musicians would come to fashion. And in many ways, I feel like fashion was one of the better music schools in a way because I was just exposed to this insane talent every night and incredible music of all different kinds of styles and also because of my job getting the opportunity to talk and get to know these musicians on a deeper level to understand how they think about music not just being exposed to how they play. How did you end up in New York anyway? Well, actually, it was uh, Robert Glasper that planted the seed in my brain. So I worked with him in 2012 or 13, um, or maybe earlier. I don't really remember exactly which year. But he said, if you want to do jazz, you need to move to New York. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, a few years before that, I volunteered at a festival in Stockholm, and Diane Reeves performed. And after the performance, I got a chance to talk to her. And she said that music is a language. And I mean, now that I've been in doing this for so long, I really understand what she means. But at the time, it really stuck with me to understand that um, if I wanted to really truly learn jazz, I needed to be in the place where people spoke jazz fluently. And growing up both in Thailand and in Sweden, I understand the difference of just learning something from a distance in a, on a school bench versus being immersed in a culture. So when Glasper said, if you want to do jazz, you need to move to New York. And then Reeves said, music is a language. And I'm like, okay, I need to go to New York. I can't learn jazz um, you know, from Sweden in the same way as I can here. And while you were in New York, did, did you go there? You, I believe, went to the Manhattan School of Music. And was that I think what you did first in order to get your master's degree and then move into the professional arena? Yes, exactly. So as an immigrant, if you're here on a student visa, you're actually not allowed to work at all. So for the first two years, I was just here studying and going to shows. But I 
wasn't allowed to to perform or do anything like that outside of school. So that happened after I graduated. And then you also were involved in the Thelonious Monk Institute's uh, competitions and uh, was one of the finalists in that. How did you get involved with the Monk Institute? That was just by chance. So before moving to New York, I had some kind of ambition of maybe applying to the Monk Institute at some point, and I would use their audition requirements as a way of practicing because their audition requirements is pretty elaborate. Like you need to be able to sing Donnelly at 216 BPM a cappella <laughs> uh, versus other schools, it's like just do an up-tempo tune. Um, but after I moved to New York, just a week in, um, all the kids at school and during orientation week was saying that the monk competition was coming up and that the deadline was basically that week. So I just took a chance and asked a few students that I just met. Um, and we went into a rehearsal room at the Manhattan School of Music and we just recorded a few arrangements that I had. And then I submitted them to the monk competition and then they selected me and it was, it went all very, very, very fast. <laughs> so what was one of your first professional gigs uh, in this country? It, it was the Monk competition. <laughs> hmm. So that was in October of 2015. I'd just been in New York for three months, and then they flew me out to Hollywood, and then I performed for Herbie Hancock and Al Jarreau and Dee Dee Bridgewater. That was my first show in the U.S. Did you reconnect uh, with Michael League? Or I, I know you established a relationship with Snarky Puppy and uh, performed with them. And uh, I, I don't know if they've actually produced some of your work or the other way around. Yes. So I actually stayed in touch with Michael. Um, and in 2014, um, before I moved to the US, they invited me to um, work as an assistant for Bill Lawrence's album Swift um, at the DreamWork Studios, I think it's called Dreamland, Dreamland Studios in Buffalo in 2014. So I was just there helping them out in the studio. And um, I got to sing a little background on some of the songs, but then Later on, Bill had this one song called Uban, where he had recorded himself through a vocoder, but he wasn't fully happy with how it sounded. So he actually asked me to record vocals for it, which I did from Stockholm and sent it over. And that was in 2014. So Michael and I stayed in touch for this entire time. And then for the Monk competition, when you enter that competition, you need to sign a contract with Concord. And um, being very new in the business, I didn't really know if this was a good or a bad contract. So I sent it over to Michael, like, hey, can you help review this for me? What am I signing on to? Um, so he helped me out with that. And then when I didn't win the Monk competition, it was just Mia Horn. Then actually Michael offered to sign me to Ground Up Music and offered to produce my first album, Tribus. Was that, uh, I guess, uh, part of an influence for you to start the path which you took in presenting yourself and doing vocals? Because you're not the traditional jazz vocalist. 
if anything, you are an innovator and uh, extremely talented and unique in the approach that you've taken. Uh, you incorporate a lot of uh, electronica. You do so many other things. You were involved with trip hop. And among all of that, you also stayed true to your Swedish and your Thai heritage and brought in uh, elements of music from those countries as well. Yeah, so I think all of that um, goes back to a few different things. Um, like I mentioned to you, one of my first influences was also Bobby McFerrin. And uh, what really drew me into him and his work is the way he uses his voice like an instrument. That he, on his album Play with Chick Corea, he would sing the bass lines and he would accompany Chick. And that was something that I was so fascinated by. And having a background in playing upright bass, I wanted to do that so bad. And I would do it with different instrumentalists. But then being a woman, there was just, I just could not sing <laughs> low enough. And um, that actually inspired me to get an octave pedal because then I was able to just push down my voice two octaves and now I could suddenly, <laughs> you know, finally sing the bass lines I, were, I was hearing. And also, again, having the approach of an instrumentalist, I wanted to be able to um, create sounds and to support my bandmates, but without dragging attention to my voice. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of my performing career in Sweden, I would try to do these things of accompanying uh, the horn, uh, a horn solo or whoever was playing, but the audience, because they're so used to hearing the vocalist being the leader, then they would be like, why are you not singing loud? Why are you not singing with words? Why are you hiding in the background? And I'm like, because I'm trying to not take attention. To, I'm not trying to make this about me. I'm trying to support the instrumentalists. And I realized that as an audience member or as humans, we're so used to really listening to voice and connecting with the voice. So even if you're trying to not make it about the voice, I think it's humanly kind of impossible to not gravitate towards the voice. So I realized that, oh, if I use electronics, then I can now decide when I want the voice to be heard as a voice and when I can camouflage it so people can be like, wait, was that the guitar or was that mm -hmm. the keyboard or was that actually me? Um, so that's that's what happened. <laughs> Uh, and it's great because you can hear it so dominantly through the recording that you have out now where you implement a lot of those instrumentations uh, or electronics to, to enhance what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I'm trying to, I guess, work around that idea of what a singer should be and how a singer should approach their voice and especially in the jazz world, what's acceptable and what's not. And I think that going back to, to your um, point about bringing in my Swedish and Thai heritage, that I moved to the US because I love jazz so much. But being here and studying about the Afro-American tradition, I also realized how much better it is, I think, for me to try to add to the genre by bringing in my influences because jazz is a sponge after after all um, instead of trying to just push this tradition that actually i did not grow up with 
Mm-hmm. I grew up with Thai music and Thai traditional dancing and Thai traditional instruments. And then in Sweden, I have this entire pop and um, songwriting heritage with ABBA and Max Martin. So it felt like I can be more valuable to the community by bringing in things that some people might not have thought about based of what I grew up with. Well, and I think it speaks well of who and what you are because you're so multi-dimensional. You're not just relegated into one idiom uh, and you stay involved with so many other things just uh, by virtue of looking at some of your credits to your background. Uh, you've involved yourself with symphony orchestra. You've also done a film score. And so as if you hadn't had enough on your plate, you've also uh, jumped into big band and got involved with some projects there. Uh, you are a producer. So I should tell our listeners at this point, uh, hold on to your seats because it's going to get even better. Not only is this lady involved in all of that, but then there is this component called the Nobel Prize. You got involved in the Nobel Prize and composed some work for that. That's yes. fascinating. Tell me about that. Yeah. So in 2013 and 2014, um, I was asked alongside a few other students at the Royal, Royal College of Music in Stockholm to create musical interpretations of the different Nobel Prizes. Um, and it, there was also a design fashion school in Stockholm that had the same task to do fashion uh, interpretations of the same prices. And then they presented our works at the Nobel Museum in Stockholm. So it was really, really cool to, first of all, think of interpreting something that's non-musical and make sense of it in a musical way. And that's actually one of the, I think, uh, starting points of how I've been approaching interpreting all the different causes and effects in my new album, Carbon, with climate change, of finding ways of turning non-musical elements into music and making it make sense in some kind of way. Which was the result of, from what I understand, like uh, a few years of climate research. How did, how did that all start? So it actually started... Um, way earlier back in 2010 um there was a big earthquake in haiti and uh, my high school at the time wanted to create a fundraiser event for uh, haiti so they asked me to write a song for it and at the time i was i think 18 or 19 years old so i wrote a song called save haiti <laughs> very very on the nose save haiti um, but anyway after performing it there was a woman in the audience who came up to me and said you know what i've been watching the news for these past few weeks and nothing has really connected with me and made me as empathetic towards the events that happened as much as your song and i think that was the moment when i fully realized the power of music and how music has a way to transcend whatever you know shields that we might have and especially with the news if you're going on it now there's so much devastating stuff happening all the time and it's so easy for us to become numb and just not be able to really connect with everything so i started um after that experience to work more about building different social issues and climate um concepts into my songs 
actually on Tribus, there's a song called In My Garden um, that I wrote about just planting seeds that even during the wintertime, if you plant seeds, then when spring comes around, they will grow. Hmm. Just finding ways of doing, you know, communicating about these topics. And I really wanted to do more music about climate change, but I didn't know again about how to write about it without making it too much on the nose and potentially then also push away people who don't want to talk about it or hear about it. And um, finally, then in 2019, I realized, oh, what if I don't put it in the lyric? What if I build it into the music instead? So then at the beginning of 2020, I started to um, do research and every day I would set a topic. Okay, today I'm going to research about air pollution. Mm -hmm. And then I would do research and then I would just kind of view it as a lab moment of how can I now turn whatever I learned into music. So I took a bunch of different data sets and I tried to find different systems of how to interpret it using an app called Two-Tone or what I ended up doing on the record was um, making connecting that the more the worse the air quality was the worse the in, um, interval would be so the more dissonance versus the better the air quality was the more harmonious but it took me probably five different songs and approaches before I decided to you know what to keep for the album and that would just be every day so next day ocean next day hurricanes and so forth I don't know how much you know about the carbon clock and the remaining carbon budget before we hit the 1.5 Celsius scenario, mm -hmm. but that's in six years. It's not a lot of time, and I don't think that we have time to not like to think about it. Oh, that's the thing later in the future. I think it's important for everyone to try to do whatever they can now, even if it's just a small little thing, I think implementing tiny habits is a really, really great way to start of what if I just bring my bag to the grocery store again, even if that might seem silly and insignificant, if everyone does it, that makes a huge impact. Well, and you chose well with a label of Ropadope because uh, their philosophy on their website, if I could read this real quickly, uh, represents the intersection of creatives and listeners. And they say that they are a meeting point for creative humans, music makers, music listeners, social justice advocates, and people seeking a more harmonious world. And, and this is exactly what you're trying to achieve, I believe, through this album. Yes, and they have been such a great partner, so it's not official yet, but we are looking into releasing carbon on bioplastic vinyls just to try to make it as sustainable as possible. And we're working right now with a company called Evolution to and do that. Um, we're printing very a very, very, very small batch of CDs. And unfortunately, the CD itself, there's only one material available at this current moment, but we've been able to make sure that the paper is recycled and that we're using non-toxic ink. So Ropadope has been a great partner in understanding my values and not just trying to push what is the most profitable, but listening to me and making sure that we're making as sustainable choices as we possibly can. Well, and being true to your values, your goals, 
you recorded this at uh, a rather unique studio in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's called a Manifold Recording Studio, and it's a solar-powered studio. And the owner, Michael Tiemann, he um, actually built the entire studio from the ground up to be a music studio. A lot of studios, for instance, in New York City, it's a building, and then you rent or buy a specific rooms or rooms, and then you build a studio into it. He built the entire building to be a music studio, so it's perfectly acoustically treated. It sounds amazing, and it's also making sure that it's in harmony with the nature surrounding it. So the entire, it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. And when you're there, you you don't barely have any cell service. There's deers roaming around on the property. There's the forest right there. So it's it's really incredible studio. So let's go through some of the album and, and some of the tracks on there and, sure. and how you incorporated all of your values and goals uh, into this. One of the things you talked about was the carbon clock, and there is uh, a track that's titled 1.5. So that track is based on the idea of the rising global temperatures, and I took the data from NASA's website from 1880 up until 2012, and I used an app that's on the internet called Two-Tone, where you can import any kind of data and it does data sonification for you so you can hear the data that you input but as you can see in the diagrams is that the the rising global temperatures from 1880 it's been you know in the beginning it doesn't move that much mm -hmm. but then since basically the 1980s it's been going up significantly and i felt like if i would have just created a piece based on the data in a chronological order it would sound Buh. So I decided to take some artistic liberty of, of choosing years that were significant to me and years that were significant to our world and create patterns. And therefore, with visuals that I use when I perform live, we can communicate the story without the data being chronological, but we're actually jumping back and forth. But with the visuals, you can see that, oh, that was 1976. Oh, that was 1918. That was... So that specific track, actually, it's all vocals. There's no other instrument on that track. And um, the vocal sounds very computerized. And that was intentional because I'm communicating data. So I wanted to make sure that the vocal did not sound too human. So I actually recorded my voice singing one note at a time. Duh, duh. And then I played it on a keyboard. So you're getting that very kind of computerized sound. Well, then not only did you do the technical aspect of it all, but then later, uh, one of the other tracks on there is AQI, mm -hmm. which incorporates some of the Thai heritage. Uh, tell us about that. 
Exactly. So that was the um, composition that I mentioned earlier, where I interpreted um, air pollution data, and I set the intervals to bad <laughs> air pollution as dissonance and better air pollution as harmonious intervals. Um, but I took that data from January and February of 2020 in Bangkok, because during the wintertime in Thailand, there's always much more air pollution. And some days it's actually really dangerous for people to be outside. Um, so to connect it to that it's Thai data that we're communicating, I had my collaborator, Ging Shigat, which is an incredible Thai keyboard player who I actually met at the Manhattan School of Music, who during the pandemic figured out a way to use Thai tuning on Moog synthesizers. So I had him play that data with Thai tune tuning on the Moog synthesizer to connect it to the, that it was Thai data. There was also a message in there about paying tribute to Thai women. Yes. So again, um, I had this great conversation with a scientist once. And um, this scientist in particular, um, she researches cancer cells, but she has also put out music and done EPs. So I asked her, when you are creative um, in the science field and trying to find solutions, how is that different from being creative as a musician and she said that the biggest difference is that when she is creative as a musician there's room for self-expression versus in science it's not but i think the way to connect with people is to add that element of self-expression so when i was thinking about air pollution and i was trying to figure out a way to turn that into metaphor in life i i remembered the time when i went um, to Thailand 2018 to perform with my band at the Wonderfruit Festival. We needed to transfer in China. And when we got off the plane in China, there was so much smog that we could not see anything that was in front of us. And um, in Thai society, I've noticed when I've talked to my fellow peers and family that a lot of, especially women, tend to not believe that they can do something for themselves they follow what society is expecting of them to they become a doctor or accountant or a lawyer or to do whatever the family wants and they are not really truly allowed to see what's possible for them and that's how i connected it with the air pollution and that idea of when i was in china and the smog that i could not see was ahead of me and when you can't see that you're not even trying to fulfill your dreams now, within the context of this album, you also incorporated not only uh, musical technique and uh, instruments, but you also featured crickets in there, you have frogs, and you have sand. So those elements are involved in this. Uh, what about the crickets? <laughs> so the crickets actually are from North Carolina. We just um, 
put two mics outside of the studio and we recorded them. So we sat in the studio and just listened to crickets. <laughs> and then we had that on a track of the album. I believe that's Hostage. Hostage, yes. You held me against my will. I never asked for this. You pointed a gun at my head, wrapped me in stone and drowned me. Who was I before you? Who was here before you broken? And then the frogs are actually from my backyard in Bangkok. I asked my dad to record the frogs. And then we use that for unspoken gold. But yeah. then the, I, I would think that part of the objective here is to keep those sounds alive and continuing for our mm -hmm. future. Yes. A hundred percent. We need the biodiversity for this world to be in balance. So what about the sand? I, I listened to that track, which I'm trying to think of what that track was Oasis? on. Oasis, yes. And what's the theme of that track? But then I was listening for the element of sand, and I think it's in the percussion section, or there's like a, a, a sifting of sand uh, that, that blends with the percussion. Exactly. We used it actually as a transition effect in between from the pre-chorus going into the chorus. And in electronic music, you do this a lot, that there's some kind of swooshing, you know, right. just to kind of connect or like in uh, when I've done orchestral writing too, it's usually a cymbal roll or just something to kind of connect a section to the next. Um, but because Oasis is to bring attention to drought, the lyric itself is it's about love and you know you're running in this desert and you don't know how long it's going to go on and then you finally find your oasis and the love of your life and that's how you can kind of live so it's a very feel-good type of love song metaphorically but then to really connect it to the notion of drought uh we we took some sand from a construction site nearby the studio and then um we recorded it so at first we didn't exactly know how we we're going to use it so i poured it into a cup of glass i had it on a piece of paper shook it around i scratched the it felt like an asmr experience to be honest with you <laughs> Uh, but then what we kept was when I poured the sand and then we used that as a transition effect. It just goes and that's the sand. And apparently you inspired your bandmates because your drummer looked around the place and found some uh, water jugs and plastic items, and he involved that in the percussion. Yes. So um, for the song that is about plastic pollution, I took plastic trash from my kitchen here in New York, and I sampled it in the computer and created a percussion set for it. But then um, for another song on the record that's called Plastic Bird, um, and that was because when I was doing this research again at the beginning of 2020, when I was writing songs about plastic pollution and biodiversity, 
you know how it is sometimes when you write songs you you don't know really what's about to happen so i had this really cool beat that was made out of plastic trash and then i had this um vocal loop uh where i got the rhythm from the mating dance of the black sickle bill and they worked together so in the computer i just had this working title called plastic bird and um as i was trying to flesh out the song I decided to keep both. So that song is actually now about plastic pollution and biodiversity. But for the studio, we decided to have Nolan Bird, the drummer, play on these water jugs to create that sound. It sounds really, really cool, and it actually ended up being on other songs too that had nothing to do about plastic pollution, just because it sounded cool. And we actually recorded the piano through a water jug as well, which created like a tremolo effect. And I think that that's um, a part of this album too that I want to inspire. That you, you know, you can, like you said, you can pick up any item or any topic. You can turn anything into music. It doesn't need to be a musical instrument for it to become musical. And one other track on here, while the entire album is uh, obviously devoted to climate change and effects uh, and causal things, there's maybe a personal note uh, in the, the track called It's All Right. Mm -hmm. The song itself is actually text messages that I received from my best friend um, who passed away in 2018. And she would just text me when I was not having a good day and trying to make me feel better. And kind of like think she was one of the kindest and most beautiful people I ever knew. And she had a way of making me feel okay when I was not okay. And I think that um, I wanted to share that with the world and share her words because they're so healing. So I took all those texts that were in Swedish translated them into English and turned them into lyrics.
But I think that's uh, a notion too for this whole climate journey and going back to the tiny habits that it's so extremely difficult for us to be perfect in terms of trying to do the best climate work we can because there's not an infrastructure that allows us to always make the best decisions when it comes to climate change and um, dealing with my own anxiety that, you know, if I, for instance, my family's still in Thailand and Sweden and I need to see them, but I know that flying leaves a huge carbon footprint and I battle a lot with like, should I go and visit my family? But at the same time, I think that it's important for people to feel like it is okay to do things, but to just, it's a different type of mindset of when you're conscious about your footprint and you're making conscious choices of when it's okay and trying to be smarter that maybe you don't make, if I'm flying to Sweden, that I don't fly four times in a year. Maybe I just go once, but for longer. And that's how I can reduce my footprint. What would you like to be the takeaway for people that listen to carbon? I would love for people to once again be just inspired and want to get to know our world better, want to get to know nature, want to connect with nature and uh, connect with themselves and then to feel like what they do matters, even if it's a small thing and that they're trying every day to implement small tiny habits. I think that's the biggest takeaway and to go on the journey themselves. That certainly is well-spoken and it's really what it's all about. Thank you for sharing yourself, your music, and your philosophies with us uh, and, and your goals uh, when it comes to climate change. It's important for all of us to take this on. So how can some of our listeners learn more about you and some of these fascinating projects that you're involved in? Um, I think my website is a great hub to find everything, and it's um, www.serintipofficial.com. Uh, I thank you very much for taking the time to be our guest on All That's Jazz. This has been fascinating and a wonderful experience. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with singer, composer, and producer, Serentip. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.